All right, guys, as we make our way back to our seats, if you have a Bible with you or app you're using on your phone, uh, or you just have the whole Bible memorized, you can tune in to Daniel chapter 1. We'll also have it on the screen as well, so you can follow along there. Well, this morning we're beginning a, a new uh, series, I guess you'd call it, looking in the book of Daniel. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because, uh, as we'll see when we talk today, is that much of our lives uh, often are lived with a failure to realize that, that we, we are exiles, which means we are people who are, are in a world that is not all that it's supposed to be. That if God created in the beginning this creation to be His place where His glory was experienced and, and we enjoyed all of the potential built into the ground, built into all the substances and sources that are in it for the benefit of our own relationships and our own lives, that, that this is just not how it is, that things are just not how they're supposed to be, and that we are a people that largely are not at home. And so it's helpful for us to think about what that means to be God's people in exile. Much of the Bible is concerned with this theme. And the book of Daniel, I believe, will help us to see this in a very clear way. So read with me in Daniel chapter 1. This morning we're just going to look at the first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both to the royal family, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. We acknowledge your presence. We are grateful for it. We thank you that you delight to be in our presence. We thank you, God, that you love us and that you like us. We thank you, God, that your presence is not bound to this space and time. We thank you, God, that our worship is not bound to this space and time. We thank you, God, that were this space and time to, to be no longer possible or legal or viable, 
that your presence with us would not be changed. And we ask now, God, that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be more deeply rooted in who you are and who we are in the lives that we live. And we ask this in our great King Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if any of you in here would ever think that someone could actually fall for one of these IRS scams or not that you may get calls for. Some of you heard this story, but this guy can. So, about a year or two ago, I, I was sitting in the Cleveland Public Library right there beside Lee Campus, and if this, I may have to change mics. If, if this is annoying, somebody just say, change. But uh, I was sitting there, I was studying, I was minding my own business, and all of a sudden, I get a call. And I usually never answer calls that are from numbers that I don't know, but I decided, hey, I better answer this because there had been some things going on with a person who, at that time, a, a homeless person was living with us. And I thought, I better answer it because it may be something about a job opportunity that he, that he has. And so I answered it, and they're like, hey, is, is this Rusty Lankford? And it's this very, actually it said Russell Lankford, so I knew that it was like serious. And so there was this, this very professional voice. And he began to say, say, I'm calling because you owe a certain amount of money uh, to the IRS due to not filing your tax forms correctly. And I was thinking, well, you're probably talking about this other guy that's living with me. And he's like, no, is this you? Is this your address? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I started to get really nervous. Now, one of the reasons that I started to get nervous and I began to go down this uh, trail of gullibility that I'm about to lay out for you is because a few years ago, we actually had did something wrong on our taxes. So being a preacher or pastor, tax stuff is like super weird, and you're trying to be a person of integrity, and at the same time, you're trying to, to make sure that you get all the necessary breaks that you can get. And so we had messed up, did something wrong, had an accountant fix that, had to pay a little extra, but everything was good as far as I knew. Well, this guy calls up, and he, and he, he exploits that. He begins to say, no, not everything is right. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, we've sent three pieces of paper, three mail, uh, articles of mail to your residence letting you know this. And we've heard no response. And I start to think, now, I'm a pretty ignorant, boneheaded person, but my wife is on top of it. <laughs> like, she is the best money manager in the world. We would be broke if I was managing our finances. And so she, I know she would not let this happen. And I began to kind of get indignant, to get angry and say, you know, you can't do this, this isn't right. And he's like, well, and I was like, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You shouldn't handle this over the phone. And he says, we've already contacted the Bradley County Sheriff's Department. And if you hang up this phone, it is considered that you are fleeing arrest, not cooperating with the government, and we will send them to your house to arrest you. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, I'm not even at my house. <laughs> you know, at, at that time, our, our children were, were being homeschooled. And so I'm thinking, man, if I hang up the phone, the police are just going to pull up at our house, walk in on my wife and kids. They were asking for something like $10,000. Like, we, it's not like we have that kind of money, like hid in a coffee can out in the backyard that we can get them. And so I, I begin to get nervous. And he's like, well, if you'll cooperate with me, I won't notify the police. 
And he's like, also, I won't notify the bank because if I notify the bank, they're going to close your account and you're not going to have access to any of your money. And so you can begin to see how uh, gullible I can be. He's like, so we're going to deal with this without contacting anybody if just you and me will talk together. And so what I need you to do is I need you to drive down to the bank and I need you to go in and you put your phone in your pocket. And I need you to go up to the bank and I just need you to tell them to take everything you have out of savings. But don't tell them what it's for. I'm protecting you. Because if you tell them, they'll shut your bank account. And you know what I actually did at the time? I said, thank you so much. I'm being serious. It's this bad. You may never come back again today. How could you trust a guy like this? I said... I said, thank you, because I, I don't know what we would do if our bank accounts shut down, get arrested. And so, there, and, then, and then it gets really bad. And then he says, and what you need to do once you withdraw all the money is I need you to go to Target. And I need you to put it on a card. And I'm like, okay. This, this makes sense. Uh, so here I am driving from the public library down to that region's downtown, if y'all know where it is. And... And I'm, I've got the phone in my pocket, because remember, I can't turn it off. That's one of the deals, right? Fleeing arrest. And I walk in there, and if y'all have ever seen Andy Griffith, I'm feeling really like Barney Fife as I re remember this story. And I'm, I walk in there, and I'm like on a, or a to, change, to change the images, a Mel Gibson ransom movie or something. And I'm standing in line at the Regions Bank downtown with my phone in my pocket on, with this guy knowing he's listening to me, just thinking, oh, no. Oh no, how can this be happening? You know, we're about to lose everything. And all of a sudden, I hope it was the Holy Spirit, something just clicked in me like, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> and I'd already asked him, I said, what if it accidentally clicks off? You know, and he's like, just call me right back. And so I'm, I just started to think, well, shoot, I'll just say it was an accident. So I take my phone out, click on it, quickly type in IRS scam, and it's real obvious, and then it gets worse. I should just stop the story right here and get to my point, but, uh, but I'm not going to. So now, <laughs> now, now I actually walk over here to this guy who normally helps me in the bank, and I'm like, I don't know if I should be talking to you or not. Whispering as if, I guess, somebody can hear me out there in the world. But... This is going on. And he just kind of looks at me and tries to not, you know, fall on the floor laughing. But uh, he's like, yeah, it's a scam. And I just begin to get really angry and think, what can we do? Who do we need to call? And he's like, there's not really anything you can do about this. But I tell you all that not just to make fun of me, make fun of myself. But I tell you because when we look in the book of Daniel and we think about our own lives, one thing is very clear is that our identities in our lives are always under this pressure to live in view of a different story, of a false story, of an alternative story, that if the world, the flesh, the devil, or any outside force can get us to actually believe something that is not true about who we are and something that is not true about the story that we're living in, we will begin to do crazy things that we might never otherwise think possible. Oftentimes this happens not through simply some sort of goofy call, but, but some sort of manipulation of our past. I mean, just like in this, there was a part of my past where there was an issue with the taxes. 
But this person was able to take that part of my past and then integrate that into this narrative, into this false story that led to me actually doing something that sounds completely ridiculous when I say it out loud. But I think if all of us were honest, we find ourselves, maybe not in that line at Regions Bank, but in some sort of line like that where we're thinking, how did I get here? What's going on in my life? Whether it's through that doorway of the manipulation of our past or whether it's through some sort of corruption or distortion of an emotion like guilt, shame, or fear, or whether it's just through the intellect, the goal is the same, is to get us into a place where we don't know who we are anymore and where we're just swept up in this current cultural pressure. The good news is we don't find ourselves in this battle out of nowhere. This is a story that we find ourselves in that goes all the way back to the very beginning, all the way back to when that ancient serpent of old, however you want to see him, was whispering in the first human's ears, Hath God really said? And even if he has, can you really know? We find ourselves in the story of the people of God, of an, an ancient people named Israel, who were wrestling with that question throughout the whole history of their identity. And we find in the book of Daniel particularly four representatives of the people of God who were taken captive from their place and are going to be officially educated and enculturated to live in light of a new and false identity and a new and false narrative that is meant to shape them to be conformed and the uses and the designs that they were never created to live out of. And the same pressure is on us today. At the risk of sounding like some sort of a goofy fundamentalist, the, the same pressures are on our students here today. Right? To, be, to, to dress certain ways, to laugh at certain jokes, to, to consent to certain ideas. Those of you who are in college, whether at Lee or somewhere else, the pressure is on you to, to smarten up. If that's a word, get smarter. I need to smarten up, I'm making up words. But to, you know, to, to quit thinking about things like the book of Daniel. To get sophisticated. The pressure's on us whether that be in certain classes or whether that be listening in certain podcasts, to just mock the very notion of truth altogether. The pressure's on us from other angles in our culture to find our identity in certain political parties. To think what it means to be a Christian is to be defined by sort of this sort of wholesale agreement the things that do not align with who we are in Christ and the exile we find ourselves in. To live for money or to just give up. And in some places today, the reality is, is that followers of Jesus will gather at the threat of their own lives being taken. The pressure is on them to deny that Jesus 
is king or to have their heads lopped off. So in these first seven verses, as we'll see in the rest of this book, is this call to hold fast to a, to a trust in who God is and to an understanding of who we are wherever we find ourselves. But so oftentimes we can't control where we are, we can't control when we are, but we can hold fast to who God is and who we are. So the first thing we see here is we need to know who we are and who God is when both we and Him are displaced. So notice verses 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of King of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now we could take a long time debating the, the history of Daniel's composition and exactly when this was taking place or when this was edited and compiled, but to just keep things simple this morning, one thing we need to say is that Israel, Judah in particular here, the southern kingdom, is being involved in three deportations. So there's three deportations that are going to take place. This is the first one. Nebuchadnezzar has, has beat uh, Pharaoh in the Battle of Carchemish. He now is overtaking the oversight and reign of Judah, and he is going to start in what we see happens here in Daniel. Two more deportations will take place, the last one in 586 B.C., and that's normally what we associate with Israel, Judah, that is, going into exile in Babylon. But this is the first of the three. But although it's not that third and final one, this is a, this is a big sting. This is a blow. This is the D-Day to Babylon's V-Day when it comes to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So the question behind this is, what about the promises given to Abraham? That this would be your place. That this is your promised land. And that you would enjoy me here. That it would be as it were this new Eden. Where you were fruitful and multiplied and enjoyed creation for my glory. What about the promises to David? That you would have a king on the throne forever. And now Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Not just through Jehoiakim but through Zedekiah. And through others will create this sort of puppet rule taking place in Judah at best, and the throne will be emptied at worst. But if this wasn't bad enough, notice verse 2. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. We can't miss what is taking place here. This is not just as if someone comes and takes over your home and says, Ooh, I like some of the furniture. I'm going to take that end table. I'm going to take that couch and take them to my house. What Nebuchadnezzar and what Babylon is saying right here, not just Judah, you've lost, but your God has lost. This is a, a complete and utter act of humiliation of the God of Israel. We're going to take these things that represent God, His holiness, and His glory, and we're just going to go set them in here in this temple that is used to worship our gods. It's important that we see here is that the attempt here is not merely to displace or exile the people of God. What is being said by Babylon is your God has been displaced. 
All that stability that you had back in Israel where you were in your place and Yahweh, your God, was on his throne, you can't live in light of that anymore. This is the exile now, people. Way before Nietzsche was ever on the scene, Nebuchadnezzar was declaring, God is dead. How are they then to find any hope in this? And we see it at the beginning of this verse. And we're going to see it all through the book of Daniel. And I think if we have ears to hear, we would hear it all throughout the scriptures. Notice the beginning of verse 2 again. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And the Lord gave some of the vessels of the house of God. These are not throwaway words. These are words of hope. The word Lord here, you'll notice, is in, in not in all caps. And if you've not realized this before when you're reading in your Old Testaments, a lot of times Lord is all caps. When Lord is all caps, it's intentional that the word behind the word Lord is Yahweh or the personal God of Israel. But most often when the word is not in all caps, the word behind that has been intentionally chosen and it is the word Adonai. It is the word that points to the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of God, that He is the Lord of lords, that He is the King of kings, that He is the Master of masters, that He is the Sovereign of sovereigns. What the, the writer of these verses is wanting to point out to the people of Israel as they would have read this in a continued state of exile at some point and what he wants us to hear today is that it may look like God is being mocked and humiliated and counted to have been defeated but behind all of this he remains on the throne. When it seems that his people and even himself have been displaced and the pain is real, the disillusionment is strong, the doubts won't go away, and the fear is huge. But the throne is secure. Trimper Longman says it this way, and he says this really is the theme of Daniel, that in spite of appearances, God is in control. And as simplistic as that may sound to many of us, maybe even in this room this morning, if you have ever went through any intense pain or suffering, if you ever even revisited any deep wounding in your life, it's that although a simple truth like that can be wielded in such an insensitive way, it is that simple truth that gives us a security to know that even in the mystery that we have not found ourselves merely to be caught up in some random set of circumstances to which we no longer have any center that will hold. Why was this happening? Again, we could take all day on these things, but in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 and much of what the Jer prophet Jeremiah devotes himself to is that if God's people were not faithful to God's covenant, that they would be removed from God's place. That this was a discipline for Israel not being a light to the nations, and so they would find themselves as captive to the nations. 
There's also prophecies wrapped up in these that even when God's discipline comes upon His people, that there would always be a remnant that would be faithful to Him, that He would keep, and that even through these times of captivity and exile and discipline, that they would be refined, that they would be purified. And what we're going to see in the book of Daniel is that even when it looks like they are just victims to other people's control, that God is going to use this very time of exile to bring glory to His name and actually bring blessing to Babylon. This is amazing how God works. It reminds me in sort of a crude illustration, if you guys have, have ever heard the story of Br'er Rabbit or Briar Rabbit and the Briar Patch. And if you don't know this, and it may be the story of the Tar Baby and... And who knows if this is even a, a correct, good history. But I'm just remembering the cartoon as a kid. So don't judge me for it. If you don't know this story, it's basically Br'er Rabbit gets captured by the old fox and the bear. I can't remember their story name. And they're going to kill him. And they're going to eat him. And Br'er Rabbit listens and he hears them. He is their captive. He is under their control. And he hears them talking about all the delicious ways that they are going to enjoy him. And he has a thought, and he tells them, whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. That would be the most painful, excruciating, humiliating death that I could face. And he just goes on and on until these two sort of dim-witted oppressors say that's exactly what we're going to do it's exactly what we're going to do and so they walk over to this sort of ominous dark briar patch and they take Br'er Rabbit and begin to, to bring heaving back and forth tossing to what would be surely his most disgraceful and imminent doom and as he lands in the briar patch he begins to laugh at them and he begins to point out, you fools, this is my home. This is where I was born. This, what you thought was going to be my death, has now only been the doorway to my life. See, sometimes in our lives, if we look around and we see what's happening, we think either there is no God or he's lost his mind. It's one thing for us to be displaced. It's another thing than we feel like God has been displaced. But what Daniel wants to show us, what these very verses this morning want to show us, is that he knows what he's doing even when it looks like he's lost his mind. When it seems God has been displaced, that he continues to be sovereign and we continue to be secure. When it seems that in our world that God is just being put on a shelf with all these other myths, with all these other stories, with all these others, if you, if you know what I'm saying here, these other meta-narratives. That God is not somehow being reduced to the control of the opinions and intellect of man. But as Psalm 2 says, and this does line up with Br'er Rabbit, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. 
at those who would decry him dead, at those who would decry him dismantled. But in exile, he is God. If there's ever any place that we see this most clearly in God's word, it's the cross. Has there ever been an event in the history of the world to where God looked more humiliated than as God the Son hung naked upon a cross, spat upon by people, mocked, and held by all human appearances to a death outside of his control? And yet we read, Chris, click on through here to the end. These words in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's basically a summary for the world. So the whole world's against him. He is exiled on the cross. If there ever was an exile. But verse 28 tells us to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is hope for us. There is not hope in trying to work out all the details of all the what ifs, buts, and whys. But there is hope in resting in the fact that as Israel is taken into exile, it was the Lord who gave. So who is God and who are we? He is sovereign and we are secure. But also who is God and who are we when you and him are both deconstructed? So if first deplaced, second deconstructed. We'll have to move a little faster here. But in verses 3 through 5 we see this. It says, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to scan in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what is taking place here is, is it's not just that we have to displace these people. Now we have to indoctrinate these people. We have to enculturate these people. It's kind of through a, a, a sort of a series of events that Sinclair Ferguson lays out this way. First, there's isolation. So we have to get people away from their home, from their influences. We've got to give them new habits, new rhythms, and routines. Not just at the level of intellect, but at the level of sight, sound, and smell. And then there's a measure of affirmation. So there's this sense in which you, you should kind of feel good. We're kind of kidnapping you from your homeland, but we're doing it because you're the best of the best. So there's this affirmation, this sort of subversive affirmation. Let's remove you from your place and people, and now let's affirm you. Let's make you think, well, I am pretty special. People back home maybe didn't notice how special I was. These people get me. Don't have to live in that old suffocating paradigm. And then they teach them. There's enculturation. So there's notice. This is so important. For those of us in here who think the battle for our heart is fought at the level merely of ideas, as if, as if we are simply as, as, as one person, I don't say all these names, but you, if you know who I'm talking about, we're not just, humans aren't just brains on a stick, right? So how do they want to enculturate them? It's through literature. It's through 
in, in their day, it would have been the media. It would have been culture, the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans here, this use of this language, if you want to go study that, it shows that this is, this is not just about Babylonian thought. This is about a whole way of life. Music, arts, connection with philosophical ideas. And then to move them into little compromises. Verse 5. To eat of the food that the king ate. To drink of the wine that he drank. We've isolated them, we've affirmed them, we're enculturating them. And now we're making them think, they're really one of us. The goal in all of this is assimilation. Assimilation. And yet there will be four at least representatives of God's people here who are able to live in a world of that type of pressure and stay faithful to who God is and who they are. One of the things that's been hardest for me in my life is seeing people who I love and care about abandon their faith. It's sad to say I've seen this more than once. And oftentimes what has happened is not at the end of the day that they have a better intellectual argument. It honestly ends up with something that sounds pretty cliche at the end of it. But somewhere along the way, there was a current touched in their hearts, not their minds usually, that compelled them into a different story. This is why if we're going to be faithful as God's people in exile, when we see the deconstruction of who God is and who we are all around us, that we're going to have to know who God is and who we are, not just in terms of a set of propositions or definitions, as good as those may be. We're going to have to know who God is and who we are in light of the story that he gives us. We're going to have to have, just like Daniel and these guys would have, we're, we're often very much more logical and Greek in our thought, and we may have to, at least for this series, get a little more Hebrew. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to think in terms of God, in terms of a God of creation, a God of beauty, a God not just of, of, of ideas, but a God who acts, a God who calls us into a, a view of all the world, and it's beauty that is better than anything the Babylonians can offer. The fall. Understanding sin not simply as just you missing the mark or some set of rules that you didn't keep. But a distortion of the very fabric of the beautiful creation that God has called us into that affects us deeply as individuals at the level not only of our, our thinking, but our desiring and our loving. It touches systems. And to a redemption that we know is only found in the Son of God who became exiled for us. Who came under God's curse of the law for our sins, but also the curse upon creation. A redemption that speaks to all the brokenness we see in our own hearts, but also on our streets. 
in our world and to a restoration of a resurrected Lord who comes to make all things new, who brings victory over sin, death, and hell. We've got to be a people who embody that story in such a way that it speaks to every story. A guy, I didn't say his name earlier, James K. Smith, he talks about the fact that all of us are partaking in, in liturgies, that is, sort of worship rhythms and acts in our lives every day, but we don't realize it. He says the best psychologists are the advertisers or the marketers. And it's true. They know that you usually don't go shopping based on intellect. You spend your money and you spend your time over what you love, over what you want, over what you enjoy. And it often doesn't make sense on paper. We've got to see when we, when we listen to the music that we listen to, when we read the books that we read, when we watch the movies that we watch, we need to say, what is this trying to tell me is the beautiful story of creation? What is this telling me is the fall? What is wrong with the world? What is this telling me is the solution or the redemption? And what is this telling me that restoration looks like? Because every one of them is telling you that. And I'm not saying go listen to some cheesy CCM as an alternative. If you want to do that, that's fine. I probably shouldn't have said that. What I am saying, though, is we have got to realize we are being engaged. We are being enculturated. And we need to be aware of that. There is cultural catechisms. Here's a few of them. I've got to say them. We're out of time. Identity. Here's one. Be yourself. The ultimate goal in life is for me to be me, defined by me. That is in the water we're drinking. We just need to see it. Morality. True for me, but true for you. What right do you have to tell me what is right or wrong? What right do I have to tell you what is right or wrong? Right. In the drink, in the Kool-Aid, all around us. More freedom. As long as no one gets hurt. I'm free to do what I want to do as long as no one gets hurt. Which usually equals uh, this sort of anti-authority stance. Technology. I got these from, from a guy named Tim Keller. Science versus faith. You keep your religious views private. Let's focus on what's true. And we're going to all make progress together as a society. And lastly, and one that may be yielded much more strongly now in our day and time seemingly than others, is history, the wrong side of history. Whatever you do, you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of history. And guess what? We're the ones here to tell you what's true, even though we just told you there's no truth. We've got to be aware that these things are at play. But we have to do so in such a way that we don't become separatists. In Jeremiah 29, if we click through here, we see Jeremiah writing to the exiles. They're under this pressure to become Babylonians, not just in terms of what their 
address is where they get their mail, but to come Babylonians in the way they think, in the way they feel, in the way they interpret the world. And you might think, y'all just need to form a little Christian subculture over here, get in an enclave together, and create all your own music, create all your own art, all your own movies, and just huddle up and say, oh Lord, protect us from all the bad guys in the world. We, a lot of Christians have done that. But I want to propose to you this morning, here's, here's a picture of how God instructs his people to live in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. I remember actually hearing people, I don't, I don't know how people could have kids in a world like this. I've heard people actually say that, right? Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Oh, if we only had time. This is a... This may be one of the most radical statements in the Bible if you understand the evils of Babylon. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. This is a vision for what it means to be the people of God in exile. Let us not be known for the people who are these always... Against culture, right? Oh, the, this Christian martyr complex. Everybody's against us. You know, we've just got to make sure everybody always knows what we're against, what we're against, what we're against. The separatism. But also let us not be syncretists. That is, let us not just assimilate and say, well, we can have our God and these gods too. No, there's this third way. It's the way of Jesus in John 17. Jesus prays for us. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice that. I don't, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Stay in the story. Stay rooted in God's word. This is what will keep us set apart even though we're right in the middle of it all. As you have sent me in the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is so much what I believe Jesus is calling us to that this is why our church is named what it is. This is what it means when we want to live up to this namesake of Matthew's Table Church. That we're not, we don't have ourselves walled off in some corner somewhere saying, if you want to come in here where it's safe, then we'll, we'll meet you. No, we want to go out. We want to do good in our city. Not with some sort of platitude day of service program or mindset. We want to go build houses. We want to go have meals. We want to get married. We want to have children. We want to increase, not decrease. And we want to do it for the good of everyone around us, whether they become believers or not, so that we show the glory of a God who loves the world. And we want to sacrifice to do it. 
Because Jesus says here it will often be a very thankless enterprise. And you may just get crucified for it. But our story tells us that every good crucifixion comes with a better resurrection. So our text ends in this way. Not only do they want to displace us, but we know who God is and who we are. Deconstruct God, but deny us our names. So just very quickly, they changed these guys' names. Before, all their Hebrew names pointed them to God. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is God? Who is like God? Azariah, Yahweh is a helper. Now they're, they're given these new names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abingo. And all of them point to these other gods. Bel, Aku, and Nebo. But this book is not named Belteshazzar. It's named Daniel. God is my judge. It's just some, some goofy, you know, sort of song or whatever, like tattoo, only God can judge me, right? But this is our hope. The Lord is judge. We've got to remember who we are. We have to remember who God is. Or we're going to end up in a worse place than that line at the bank. The only way I got out of that line was I quit being passive. I quit believing this is the only way out. God gives us more options than the world gives us. So may we take our doubts, our disillusionments, our displacements to Him and His truth and know who He is and who we are wherever we are. Father, thank You for the fact that You don't leave us when we are in exile. That when we have our own doubts about you, about life, that you can handle the hard questions and that you don't seek to abandon us or have us abandon you, but to grow us closer together to you, to refine us down to what is true about who you are and who we are, and ultimately about who we are in your Son, in whose name we pray. Each week we respond to God's word by coming to God's table. It was in this act that the early church really reminded each other of their identity. And that although they were accused of being cannibals for doing it in the earliest years, because if you've never thought about it, if you're used to church, it's kind of weird that we're going to go and partake of bread that points to somebody's body and uh, a drink that points to somebody's blood. Right? If, you're, if you hadn't caught the kind of weirdness of that and you're missing the point but it's in taking that that we show this is who we are that in a world that would want to define us by so many things that it is Jesus who defines who we are he is our rescue he is our Passover lamb and so before we come to the table just ask yourself am I a follower of Jesus because that's the only hope in exile not, not a bread not a cup apart from faith Ask yourself, am I unreconciled with a fellow follower of Jesus? As exiles, the, our greatest witness is the love that we have for one another. Or am I at peace with a sinful action or desire in my life? Not am I 
not am I a person who sins, the supper is only for those who sin. But have I bought into this, this worldly narrative, this, this false sense of truth that, you know, it's, it's just who it is, it's just who I am. 